Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, the book of Romans in chapter 9. After a significant break over Thanksgiving and Christmas where we looked at other passages and other subjects, we return now to our verse-by-verse study of this incredible letter, this letter that has been used by God in such a powerful way in the lives of so many people over the centuries. And I know it's difficult after we've been away from a passage for more than a month to just jump right back in. And so what I want to do is walk us back into the passage uh, by giving you four statements. Four statements concerning what we've already seen in this chapter. So first, we have already seen that the vast majority of Jewish people in Paul's day were cursed and cut off from Christ. And that is verses 1 through 5. Um, hear Paul's sadness as he thinks about the lostness of his own people, of his own kin. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is lamenting that the Jews are, by and large, an unbelieving, unsaved people. But then second, we have seen that God's word has not failed. And this is verse 6. And this is the main point of what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about. Verse 6 is the key thesis statement of all that Romans 9, 10, and 11 seek to unpack. Namely, God's word has not failed. God had promised to save Israel. The Messiah came and Israel is unsaved. It looks like God's word has failed. But Paul argues, no, God's word has not failed. And then third, the reason God's word has not failed is that the Israel God promised to save was not ethnic Israel, but spiritual Israel. The reason God's word has not failed is that the Israel God promised to save in the Old Testament was not ethnic Israel, but spiritual Israel. And this is what he unpacks using Old Testament verses to show that this is true in verses 6 through 13. And in these verses, Paul shows that it is not a biological connection to Jacob or Abraham that makes someone a part of God's covenant promises. Instead, Paul argues that true children of God are miracle children, children born of promise, children brought about through a work of his mighty hand. So look at verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. 
but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah, barren Sarah, shall have a son. So miracle children are the children of Abraham. And then fourth, we saw that spiritual Israel is made up of those chosen unconditionally by God before they were ever born. Spiritual Israel is made up of those chosen unconditionally by God before they were ever born. This is verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Where we have two children, both born of one father, both descendants of Abraham, and only one chosen by God to receive his promises. So look at verse 10. Paul says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So the true Israel is spiritual Israel, people born of a miracle of God, chosen by him, Before they were born, these are the people who receive God's precious promises. Now that brings us to the passage that we looked at last time, the passage that we need to finish this morning, and it's verses 14 through 18. So let's look together, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, And he hardens whomever he wills. Now, without rehashing everything that we saw in verses 14 through 16, let me just remind you what was so significant about that verse that Paul quotes in verse 15. What was so significant about the verse that Paul quotes in verse 15 is this. That verse was God explaining to Moses in the book of Exodus one meaning of his holy name. His holy name. Now names are important, aren't they? Your name is a part of who you are. Uh, your name summarizes all of you. When someone says, you know, you know John, you, you picture John with all that John is and his, his eccentricities and his oddities and the way he looks and his personality. You, you think of all that John is. When someone speaks of you, the full of you and the full complexity of who you are. They use your name. Have you ever wondered how your life might be different if you had a different name? I I don't know the answer to this. I just wonder, would your life be the same if you were you, you just had a different different name? Certainly names are important, but they are even more important when they are given by God. Because God always names things in accordance with what they are. So when God reveals to us a name that he has chosen for himself, 
the name by which he is to be known. That is significant. God's name says something about who he is. Indeed, we're told to sing praises to God's name. We're told in the Bible that God's name is majestic in all the earth. Uh, Psalm 9 verse 10 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you. Uh, Psalm 20 verse 1, May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Psalm 20 verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the what? In the name of the Lord our God. What we find in Scripture is that God's name stands for Himself. Uh, To trust in God's name is to trust God. To sing God's name is to sing to God. To love God's name is to love God. At the burning bush, back in Exodus 3, God spoke to Moses his divine name, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah. The Old Testament Jews believed this name to be so holy that they would not speak it aloud. The Mishnah is a book of Jewish teaching. It actually declared that anyone who spoke God's name out loud would have no place in the world to come. You could not go to heaven if you dare to utter God's holy name out loud. The name could be written, but when the scriptures were being read aloud by the priest, whenever they came to the name of God, they were not allowed to say it. Instead, they had to replace it with uh, Adonai, for example, meaning Lord. To this day, our English translations still use the word Lord to translate the divine name rather than actually writing the name. But what does this holy name of God mean? Well, we saw in our study of Exodus one meaning given at the burning bush, and that was, I am who I am. But that is not the only meaning that God gave for his name. At Mount Sinai, in the passage that Paul quotes here in Romans 9 verse 15, God spoke to Moses another meaning of his name. And that meaning was, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, do you see how these two names of God are related? I am who I am means God is independent of anyone else. We don't make God who He is. He is who He is. Similarly, we don't make God do anything He doesn't want to do. God isn't obligated to anyone. He has mercy on whom he has mercy means God has complete sovereign freedom to act as he chooses to act. He is who he is and he does what he pleases. That's the meaning of the name of God. This is what it means to be God. And so what we find in this passage is this holy name of God and that it means sovereign freedom. As Daniel 4, 35 puts it so well, He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? So Mount Hermon, what is the name of our God? What does Yahweh mean? What does Jehovah mean? It means I am who I am, and I do as I please. Can you handle that? Can you handle a God who is God? 
who is free from all outside influences and obligations? Can you handle a God who has complete and utter freedom to do as he wills with his creation? Now here's where Paul goes next. The very name of God revealed to Moses, this name of sovereign freedom, is the name which God chose to have proclaimed throughout the nations. And God says it was for this purpose that Pharaoh was raised up. So this is verse 17. Right? Verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name, what name? Yahweh, I am who I am, and I do what I please, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So in verse 17, Paul is quoting again. And he's quoting this time from Exodus 9, verse 16. And here's what he's doing. This is important. He is showing that God's sovereign freedom does not just mean that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. God's sovereign freedom also means that sometimes he hardens whom he chooses to harden. You see, God's freedom cuts both ways. Sometimes God chose to have mercy. Sometimes God chooses to show compassion. And sometimes he chooses to harden people and to give them over to their pride To give them over to greater and greater sin. Sometimes God shows mercy. Sometimes God hardens. That's his conclusion. And he gets it from the example of Pharaoh. And he states his conclusion in verse 18. So do you see verse 18? So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills. And Paul already said that up in verse 15. But now he says more. And he hardens. Whomever he wills. Now remember what this paragraph is about. It's an objection. Remember the objection in verse 14? God is being unjust. God is being sinful to choose some people for himself and not others. God is being unjust in choosing to save some people and not to save others. He's being sinful. But friends, what is sin? Sin is going against the character of God. Sin is anything opposed to the character of God. God cannot sin because God cannot be ungodly. And if God's very name means sovereign freedom, that he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he hardens, it cannot be sin For God to act in complete accordance with his name. For God to be God is never unjust and never wicked. God is the very standard of what goodness and justice look like. And so Paul is using the name of God and Old Testament scripture to show that the objection that God is being unjust will not stand. But along the way, God has given us more than just that. I want you to note three further points from these verses. Three further points from these verses. Number one, I want you to see Paul's confidence in the Scriptures. Paul's confidence in the Scriptures. Because we have a really interesting phrase at the beginning of verse 17. 
You have to pay attention to these things because there is glory here. It's easy to just miss it. It's easy to, you're reading Romans 9 and you just gloss right over this and you miss this. You, you got to note this. Verse 17 begins this way. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Hmm. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Mount Hermon, scripture didn't exist when the events recorded in the book of Exodus took place. There was no scripture to speak to Pharaoh. The the book of Exodus, from which these words come, did not exist at the time of Pharaoh. How could scripture say anything to Pharaoh when scripture did not exist? And I love B.B. Warfield's comment on this. This is fantastic. He says, it was not the not yet existent scripture that made this announcement to Pharaoh, but God himself through the mouth of the prophet Moses. These acts could be attributed to scripture only as the result of such a habitual identification in the mind of the writer of the text of scripture with God as speaking that it became natural to use the term Scripture says when what was really intended was God as recorded in Scripture said. In other words, Warfield is arguing, and I think he's absolutely right, that in the mind of the Apostle Paul, there was no difference in saying God said and Scripture said. Paul's confidence in the Scriptures. In Paul's mind, to say God said and the scripture said are one and the same. Paul has such confidence in the written word of God, the scriptures, that there is no doubt in his mind that when scripture is speaking, God is speaking. And I just want to ask you this question. Very simple. Do you see the Bible that way? Is that the way you regard this book? And is that the reverence you have for it? Can you honestly say in your heart, in your mind, that you are confident that the Bible says means the same thing to you as God says? And if this is what you believe, and I hope it is, do you relate to your Bible that way? Do you see that to disobey the Bible is to disobey God? To disbelieve the Bible is to disbelieve God. To disregard the Bible is to disregard God. And do you see that to cherish the Bible's every word is to cherish every word from the mouth of God? Can you say that your love for God is expressed by your reverence for His Scriptures, your attention to His Scriptures, your faith in His Scriptures? To rejoice in God is to rejoice in His Bible. To tremble before God is to tremble before the words of His Bible. Number two. I want you to note that by giving us the example of Pharaoh, God is teaching us that He really does harden the hearts of real people in the real world. He really does harden the hearts of real people in the real world. You see, it is all well and good to talk about God hardening someone's heart if it seems abstract or fictional. 
But verses 17 and 18 of Romans 9 exist to say this. This is real life, folks. This happens. There are real people who have been ordained by God to hate him and to continue hating him to the very end. There are real people who have been predestined by God to reject his offerings of mercy and to live in continued rebellion until the day that God brings his wrath upon them just as he did with Pharaoh. God called Isaiah to be his prophet. Remember Isaiah 6, that fantastic passage, right? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then uh, God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah cries out, here am I, send me. And then God says this to Isaiah. He says, Isaiah, here is the message I want you to speak to my people. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, God always works through his word. And our prayer is that time and again, God will use his word to soften hearts and to bring people to Christ and to give mercy. But God said to Isaiah, Isaiah, here's what my word is going to do to my people as you preach it. It's going to harden them. It's going to close their ears. It's going to blind their eyes. They will not understand. They will not turn. And then I will bring judgment upon them. Or let's continue with the example of Pharaoh. Did you notice that God told Moses that it was he, God, who had raised Pharaoh up? Pharaoh did not come out of nowhere. He, like every other person who has ever lived, like every person in this room, he was part of God's plan and part of God's story. And Pharaoh's role in this story was to continue rejecting God again and again and again until God brought judgment upon him. And in the same way, Mount Hermon, each and every person in this room exists for a reason. You were not created by accident. And it could possibly be that the reason God has created you and allows you to live each day is that he is preparing you for an eternity of judgment which will be poured out upon you. And he will get glory through you when he enacts his justice upon you for every act of rebellion you've ever committed. And the angels will see it. And the saints in heaven will see it. And they will worship the righteous God who lets no wrong go unpunished and no injustice go unpaid. Friends, the hard teaching of Romans 9, 17, and 18 is that there is such a thing as the reprobate. There is such a thing as a people created by God to be hardened time and again so that they never believe, never repent, and are objects of his righteous wrath forever. And I do not hesitate to say I think it is the hardest teaching in the entire Bible. The Trinity is hard to understand. This isn't difficult to understand, but this is the hardest, I think, to accept. But I think it has a good purpose in our lives. 
Because I suspect that there are a lot of people who secretly don't believe that God really sends anyone to hell. I suspect that there are a lot of church-going people who are presumptuous about their own souls. And they think, well, I'm not, I'm not sure that Christ really has my heart and all that, but, but I don't really think God's going to send me to hell. I, don't, I, just, I just can't fathom in my mind that God would really send me to an eternity of suffering and pain. And yet, even as they're saying that to themselves, it could be that God is doing His hardening work in their lives and preparing them for the day when they will, in fact, experience that torment forever. And so let us be crystal clear. Let us say this with deep trembling. Let us say this with a heavy weight upon our souls. Hell is real. Real people go there. And if you do not find the mercy of God, you will go there. Not only do the reprobate exist, but there are billions of them. And if you never come to a point where you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will prove to be one of them. And I pray that there are none of them in this room. Dear friends, when it comes to salvation, we are ultimately utterly dependent upon the will of God. And therefore, if at any moment of your life, you sense God calling you to believe on Christ, don't put it off. You are not guaranteed that God will call you again. Hebrews says it this way. Today, while you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. If you hear the call of God to believe on Christ and you harden your heart against it, you will one day see it was God working through you to harden your heart. Preparing you for a day where he will get glory over you as he shows the glory of his wrath rather than the glory of his grace. What does it look like when God is hardening someone? Well, the doctor, Martin Lloyd Jones, gave five ways to his listeners that God hardens a person's heart, and I'm just going to mention them. So examine yourself, see if any of these things may be true for you. God forbid, I hope they're not. But if you were to see that one of these is true for you, then then let this wake you up and, and call you to call out to Christ for mercy before it's too late. Number one, God hardens hearts by loosening his restraints on our sinfulness. By loosening his restraints on our sinfulness. So picture a boiling pot with the lid on it. And the lid keeps the boiling water from, from overflowing but you take the lid off and, and the water bursts forth. Well, Lloyd-Jones points to Romans 1 where we read again and again of God giving people over to their sin. And he points out that that, that only goes so far. That if God did not put a check on human sinfulness, this world would become chaos and hell itself. But it is God's common grace that keeps human beings from being as wicked as they could be. There is grace in all people's lives where God keeps us from becoming as vile as our sins would lead us to be. But one of God's ways of hardening an individual is that he loosens that gracious restraint. 
he allows sin to have more of its effect in a person's life. All sin has a deadening effect on our souls. All sin moves us further away from God. All sin further solidifies us in rebellion against Him. And when this effect is not checked or lessened by God's common grace, sin hardens us all the more. Second, God hardens hearts through His law. Through His law. This is Romans 7. The human heart is wicked. The human human heart is looking for a way to exalt self over God. And when someone in that condition hears God's laws, their first instinct is to break the law as an act of rebellion. It's just like when you were a child and your parent told you not to look in that book. Before your parent told you that, you would have never wanted to look in that book. You didn't care about the book. You hadn't noticed the book. But suddenly your parent says, don't look in that book. And now there's only one thing you desire to do. What's in the book? i got to see what's in the book. God's law works that way for unbelievers. When there is something in their hearts that wants to rebel against God, the law actually stirs up immorality within them. Number three. God hardens hearts by showing mercy to others. God hardens hearts by showing mercy to others. Remember how the Pharisees doubled down in their pride and became angrier and more hostile to Jesus because he dared to show love to tax collectors and prostitutes. They would witness the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus and it just made them angrier. Sometimes God uses his mercy to others to open a sinner's heart. And sometimes God uses his mercy to others to harden a sinner's heart. Fourth, God hardens hearts by provoking desires in people. By provoking desires in people. And here Lloyd-Jones points us to the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Before he came to Egypt. How did Joseph in the book of Egypt, I'm sorry, in the book of Genesis, come to Egypt? Well, God didn't make Joseph's brothers choose evil. God didn't tempt Joseph's brothers in the sense of encouraging them to sin. That encouragement was already there. It was already in their souls. Joseph's brothers were already intending to do Joseph's harm, Joseph harm. But in God's providence, he caused there to be a caravan traveling to Egypt. It just so happened that just as the brothers were discussing what they would do with Joseph... Here comes this caravan. And this act of providence provoked something in these brothers. So that they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Through his providence, God can can throw fuel onto the fire of a wicked heart. Just by bringing opportunities for sin our way. And in this way, he accomplishes his work of hardening. And then fifth and finally, God hardens hearts by allowing Satan to have greater influence and impact than before. We know from the book of Job and elsewhere that Satan is on a leash. Satan can only do as much harm as God allows. God has the ability to pull the leash back on Satan so that he cannot get to you. But God also has the ability to give the leash some slack and to give Satan more leeway. 
Mount Hermon, as you look back over those five truths, maybe later today, if they don't cause you to tremble, I don't know what will. I hope they cause you to see that we are but clay in the hands of the potter. But Mount Hermon, there is a third and final truth that I want us to notice in these verses. It is the ultimate goal of God in raising people up. Whether people are being raised up to receive mercy, or whether they're being raised up to be hardened, the ultimate goal is the same. Every person, whether ultimately a vessel of mercy or a vessel of wrath, exists for the same goal. And what is that goal? That God be glorified. That all of His perfect attributes be displayed That he be known as he is, that his name, that his character be proclaimed and seen and savored and worshipped. What did God say to Pharaoh? For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Mount Hermon, everything exists for God. And every human being exists as an object upon which God is going to demonstrate something of His glorious, beautiful, righteous, awesome character for His own enjoyment and for the eternal delight of His holy creatures and His saints. He has chosen to put on, to put on display both the riches of His mercy and the riches of His justice. The God of the Bible is not a God that will fit in your pocket. The God of the Bible is not a God you can manipulate. This is not a God who can be fashioned after your own image. We don't make God who He is. He is who He is. And this is who He is. Now, in closing, to keep biblical balance, there is something that I am happy to end with this morning. And that is this. While our God does indeed sometimes harden people for his good purposes, his greatest pleasure and his greatest delight is in showing mercy. Because you see, in fact, in Exodus 34, God proclaims his name to Moses yet again. And we are given a third meaning for the name of God. I am who I am. I have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And then in Exodus 34, listen to verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's a long name. What does the name mean? Well, we hear here that our God is a God of justice. We hear in that name that God is not a God that will just sweep guilt under the carpet. Uh, We read in that name that God is a God of consequences. Iniquity will have its consequences not only in our lives, but in our children's lives, in our grandchildren's lives. But we also hear in that name of God that he is slow to anger. 
and that he is merciful and that he is gracious and that he is a God abounding that is filled to the brim and overflowing with steadfast love and faithfulness. That he is a God of forgiveness and a God of salvation. So make sure you keep these together. Yes, sometimes God raises people up to harden them and they are objects of his wrath. But that is only to be the backdrop to the main display. The display of God's mercy and grace in the lives of his saints. Dear friends, God is like the lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. He is good, but he is not safe. Let us never think that we can domesticate him. Instead, let us tremble before him. Let us reverence him. Let us love him. And through Jesus Christ, let us rest in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.